Chronic disease and autoimmune conditions are a huge issue and people are looking to relieve the discomfort, anxiety, and stress associated with these disorders. One day, I received a text from Best and Brightest member Chad Crowsdale. When I zoomed into the image, it was a tub filled to the top with water and ice, blocks of ice, and this piqued my curiosity. Chad is a regular listener and I love when a member from the nation sends me something new to look into. So I had to look into it myself and I just had to know more about this ice bath. So I reached out to the CEO of Morosco Forge, Jason Soffer. And luckily, Jason and his wife, Adrian, were local for a scheduled seminar and could record live in studio. Jason's here to share his story and his wife's experience with an autoimmune condition that she has since overcome and how incorporating ice baths have helped them and so many others. If you're interested in Morosco Forge ice baths for yourself or guided meditations to help with your deliberate cold exposure experience, check them out at moroscoforge.com. That's M-O-R-O-Z-K-O Forge, F-O-R-G-E.com. Shifting gears, best and brightest, as we announce in episode 112 with Defender Shield's Daniel DeBond, where we discuss biological impacts of 5G and EMF, the time has come to lift the curtains on our new website at scottyburgess.com. Our new website is complete with fully interactive calendars that support our new virtual and in-person healing sessions, life guide consultations, and only the best-in-class affiliates that we personally incorporate into our daily lives. When designing the new website, I continually ask this one question, what would this look like if it were simple? Here you will find quality reviews, explainer videos, and easy button purchasing all to create the best experience. Be sure to check out Scott's favorites on the shopping page at scottyburgess.com. One more thing, February 7th, 2022, we will be moving to a subscription-based model. More information will be shared soon, so be on the lookout for that. We want to avoid ads during the episodes, and we want to continue to improve and create value and content you can incorporate immediately into your daily life and share with others. The subscription will be $4.99 a month, and I'm asking you to please consider signing up. Through this subscription, you'll have prime access to not only the podcast, but also full videos typically found on YouTube. We want to bring open, uncensored content, and we believe this is the best way to share this with the best and brightest. Short clips with tips and insights will still be available on YouTube, so please subscribe there as well. Also know that if you're not subscribed to YouTube Music or YouTube Premium, that you may have ads pop up there. Again, please consider supporting this show through a subscription come February 7th. Lastly, if you're looking for a unique way to overcome and correct various health disorders through conversation, consider signing up for my mailing list, the best and brightest YouTube channel, or follow me on Instagram so I can show you what I'm reading, what I'm thinking, and explore everyday remedies that are useful today. Now, let's jump into my conversation with Jason Stauffer in the new virtual teaching studio. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. By now, you're seeing the changes so this is now our podcast studio, this is our virtual teaching center, and it's also our healing clinic. A very good friend of mine, Chad Crowsdale, who's now the COO of 270 Surgical, he texts me this video. He just bought a unit, uh, and I'm gonna have uh, Jason Stauffer here talk about the Forge and how it's controlling inflammation, how it's dramatically helping. Before I forget, I wanna read something from Chad, because I asked him, I said, hey, if you don't mind, give me your experience. He said, I've done five minutes a day, every day, I'm not traveling, love it. Mm. What benefits have you noticed? He goes, sleep, energy, 100%. He knows his immune system has definitely benefited, but he doesn't really have a metric to measure that. He just feels good all the time. 
And he goes, here's one thing for sure. When I traveled for eight days recently, my body was craving the ice. He says, I got in the ice within 30 minutes, arriving home, and he felt much better. So it's improving. I want to invite and thank uh, Jason Stauffer for coming over. And uh, thank you for breaking the ice here, yeah. man, in the studio. This <laughs> Thanks is so a- much for having me here, Scott. Amazing. I'm glad we could do this live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, dude, tell me your story, man. Really, it starts six or seven years ago. My wife, Adrienne, she, she got sick. It was very sudden and it was very strange. She got to her early 30s. We'd been together for a couple of years. And all of a sudden, her systems just started turning on her. Which ones particularly? That's what we had to figure out. So the observations and the experience was there was very rapid weight gain. She gained about 50 pounds in um, a short period of time, four or five months. All of a sudden, foods and botanicals and fragrances and things that she had been around all of her life, been consuming all of her life, she was all of a sudden developing very violent allergic reactions to. Mm. We really couldn't figure it out for a while. She was going to doctors. A lot of tests were being run. A lot of the doctors were just like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. She did end up with a few diagnoses. One of them was Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, which is an autoimmune condition. Another one uh, is eosinophilic esophagitis, which is another autoimmune condition. This is where the allergic reactions to foods and botanicals and fragrances were yeah. popping up. So all of a sudden, she would smell a body spray or, or something would be blooming or she would eat eggs, which she loved. A few short months earlier were perfectly benign to her. We're now giving her these violent reactions in her esophagus, where there would be hives that would burst and then there'd be, you know, fluids that drain into her throat. And the doctors had no idea? The original doctors had no idea. There's these diagnoses. Another one was urticaria, which is like a skin flushing, which again is an autoimmune allergic reaction. Yeah. There are prescriptions prescription medications that popped up as part of this. With the thyroid condition, it was synthetic hormone, Synthroid, from an endocrinologist. The endocrinologists, when they give these diagnoses to people about these chronic thyroid conditions, the story is generally, you have this, there was nothing you could have done to prevent this. This is just something that happens. You will always have this, and you must take this synthetic hormone every day (laughs) for the rest of your life, or you might die. That's the story that patients are given by endocrinologists. Isn't that crazy when they do that too? Because here's the thing, like I was telling you, Cody Goldman, so he's episode one or two. He talks about how we know less than 2% of the physiology of the body. Mm. We understand less than 2%. So to say that there's nothing you can do with this just happened, it's like, come on. So I'm listening to you in your story about Adrian. All I'm hearing is pet cow effect. Mm. Think of compounding, yeah. right? With, like with cents and dollars and all that kind of same with like this toxins that haven't been removed properly. Mm-hmm. And we talked about for a second, a chronic disease and that non replenishing of new cells. So the old cells are kind of sticking around longer than they need to. That's what I'm hearing right there. So yeah. she needed a flush. Yeah, absolutely. And the allergist <clears throat> put her on live antibody shot Zolaire. She was doing those twice a month. I think she was getting double doses um, just to kind of put a stop on these allergic reactions that she was having. Mm. Um, How old is she? When this is happening, yeah. about 32. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, about 32, 33. Did you do a heavy metal detox? Um, I don't believe that was part of the journey. What I saw was the prescriptions popping up and there's side effects to the prescriptions. Mm-hmm. And so then there's supplements because she was also going to a natural path. 
And so the naturopath is like, take these supplements. They're good for these side effects. But then those supplements have side effects. And so then I was just watching this pill bottle collection kind of grow and grow and grow on the dresser. And something just never sat right with me about the story that she was being told and the story that she was telling herself. I love how it's it's come up. I was telling you that a lot of these things are aligning, right? We had John McDermott on for episode 100 and 101. Uh So the pharmaceutical industry spends $5 billion a year on have a problem, take a pill, mm-hmm. right? And the supplementation market has kind of piggybacked on that, rode the coattails of that whole slogan. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't want to take those pills, right. but take ours instead because they're right. better for you, yeah. right? And then all of a sudden, like what you're saying, you have some over-the-counter supplementation, and then you have prescription. And then obviously you have this like pill mass. Yeah. Absolutely. Up, right? My education's in engineering, but when I got out of undergrad, I went into pharmaceutical business analytics. So I kind mm-hmm. of had a little bit, I did that for a couple of years. So I've got enough to get my feet wet in how pharmaceutical products are researched, developed, how they're studied, how you really can kind of skew the studies to benefit whatever narrative the company wants to produce. And also the, the different pathways where yeah, a, a new drug application approved for the FDA is great. But if you can't do that, you just market it as a supplement over here. And right. All it is is labeling. That's right. You know, all it is is the differences in the labeling. You know, there's the approval and the unapproval. Then you just change the label so that it's a, an unapproved supplement. You put that little disclaimer on there that says, this is not FDA approved. <laughs> and I, I, I saw that in the industry. I said, well, you know, we didn't get the uh, new drug application approved. So I guess we'll go over the counter supplementation. You yeah. Know? Um, and so that's just kind of the way that the industry is. And so I had that in my mind while Adrian was going through this process. I also saw that there was, there's an identification uh, that occurs in a person when they are given these chronic disease conditions. It's like this helplessness. Auto-suggestion. Yeah. And there's depression, there's anxiety, there's stress, and there's all of a sudden like, I am a sick person, you know, and there's nothing I can do about it except that I got to take the things that the doctor says to take. They're going to keep me alive. And it's just... How did you handle that? It was difficult. You know, when I tell the story, I always want to stop and say, you know, like, I could tell this story in this, you know, triumphant linear launch into wellness, but it, it wasn't that, you know. Yeah. It was a lot of a You lot went of through stress. your stress yeah. for you too, right? Absolutely. There was a lot of arguments. There was a lot of like the marriage wasn't very great. It wasn't very strong. And there were times when I was working through my own process of trying to understand things where I I said things and did things that were not they were the best responses I could have at the time, right? Sure. But they weren't sensitive and they weren't validating. And a lot of times they were invalidating to Adrian's perspective. That led to a lot of, you know, a lot of arguments, a lot of fights, a lot of... But at the same time though, right? I look at that and that's really cool of you and nice of you to kind of bring up and recognize that as well. I'm sure she really appreciates that. But at the same time, you only knew what you know. Right. At the yeah. time. At the time. Right. And now that if you at went, if you knew then what you know now, yeah. you'd be like, you'd be, those conversations probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah. They're the conversations that we have better versions of these conversations with the people that we're helping now because yeah. we've, we've gone through the process. We know what not to say to someone who's identified pretty wholly as a chronically ill person. But at the time, the only thing I knew was that it just didn't sit right with me. The helplessness part didn't sit right with me. The, the part that there was nothing we can do except 
take the medications and the supplements. Have you ever seen the movie The Farewell? I have no. You should check it out. It's pretty cool. So there is, uh, it's a great story. I watched it twice. It's about a grandmother and she was diagnosed with a cancer. Mm-hmm. But the family, part of the family lived in the United States. The other family was in China with her. But the family took the hit. They didn't tell her. Mm. So well, they didn't tell her. They didn't tell her. Yeah. So the three forms of death are by trauma, poison, or auto suggestion. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm a sick person, like you talked right. about. Like people actually die from that. Yeah. Because like, oh, I mean, it's not that I can do. I'm, I'm giving up. Boom, spirit goes mm-hmm. throughout. Right. Mm-hmm. So the family took the hit. I mean, they took on that burden. By the end of the movie, seven years later, she was still alive and kicking and yeah. doing her thing. It was yeah. an unbelievable movie. Those to show you the power of words mm. and what you just said and how your wife felt and what these doctors unknowingly are. Yeah. The lack of hope they're pulling from the people mm. at the same time. Yeah, it's absolutely right. And it's a good segue to the next part of this journey, which is I just started reading. I, I decided that there was something that wasn't understood about what was going on. And I just started consuming, you know, all the books that I could on. I had and still have this system where I read new nonfiction and old fiction. The new nonfiction is, you know, books on psychology, biology, trauma, healing, even economics and industry. And then the old nonfiction books, I'll read novels, you know, old novels, Steinbeck, Hemingway, old science fiction novels, because my theory, and I get this partially from a guy named Nassim Taleb, who we'll get to a book that I read from him that was really transformative. But his theory is, you know, if a book is at least 50 years old or older, there's a reason for that. If mm-hmm. it's still in print, if it, you can still find it on the shelf or you still know about it. It's just this natural way that, that time pushes out the books that don't have anything that's transcendent or timelessly relevant. Sure. So yeah, towards fiction, I go towards that. And there are there's so many little nuggets of wisdom in there that maybe even weren't something that the author at the time understood was going to be resonance, you know, generations later. There's this book I recommend to everyone. It's called The Virus of the Mind. It has nothing mm. to do with the virus everyone is right. dealing with right now. It's with memes. Mm. He just wrote this unbelievable book. And I'm like, man, I would love to get him on the show to talk about what has happened after the book. What's been the response from the audience? And it goes back, not just our generation, but generation deep into family, into culture, in just different countries on just memes, whether it be religion, marketing, businesses, all of it. Mm-hmm. And the pre-programming that's set in our heads when we're younger. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it falls right into that. And, and Exactly. But he pulled all that information from the type of books that you just talked about. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Absolutely. And when you were talking about that, one of the books that I read that was very significant was called The Serpent and the Rainbow. I believe the author's name is Wade Davis. And it reads kind of like a, an adventure novel, but it is nonfiction. Uh, Wade Davis in the 1980s, he's called himself an ethnobotanist. He was an academic. He would go into indigenous cultures and study their shamanic cures, right? And he would look for something that wasn't just, for lack of a better term, mumbo jumbo, something that some plant that had a medicinal property in it. And he would bring that back to industrialized United States and see if he can synthesize it and then market it. And then the pharmaceutical companies would market it. And so what happened was a pharmaceutical interest sent him down to Haiti to research these rumors that they heard 
about a voodoo potion that turns people into zombies. And so the pharmaceutical company is thinking, maybe this is something that we can use as an anesthetic or something like that. So he goes down and he gets deep, deep, deep into the Haitian voodoo culture. He actually takes a few trips down there. Long story short, and I hope I won't ruin, it's a great book. I hope no. I won't ruin it for him. But long story short, he did, and he never really quite put his finger on it because, you know, there's lots of people who are selling, you know, bogus versions of it or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, but his understanding was to make a zombie, the person has to believe culturally that it's possible. They have to believe that this specific curse has been put on them. And then they're given some sort of potion that knocks them out for a few days when they wake up. You know, they believe that they've been cursed. They believe they've been turned into a zombie. And a lot of times what actually happens is that they're brought into like plantation slavery and they're just completely detached from their cultural familial wow. um, connections and really do believe that is their now their lot in life to just work zombified on this plantation. And there's a part of it because he's studying other cultures trying to understand this. And there's a part of it where he comes to, I believe it's Aboriginal cultures in Australia where there are reports of, and this is where that power of suggestion goes, where if the, if the medicine man, if the shaman points a bone at a person and puts a death curse on them, they can lay down and die. Hmm. But it's not going to work on you or me. Right. Right. Because we weren't raised to believe In that, that culture. it could. Right. And so that book and that part was really significant and kind of waking up to the power of that suggestion and the power that our mind has. And one of the invalidating things that you can say to a person who is, you know, chronically ill and in that system and in that mindset is that, you know, the sickness is in your mind. And that's, right. you know, I probably said something kind of like that to Adrian at one point, which was, of course, just invalidating and the because absolute she's going wrong the experience thing to and you're, say. And you're not. And she's right. like, what the hell? Like, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, um, yeah. I can see and that. So that's, that's absolutely not the right thing to say. But then you get to this understanding. Well, maybe it's not that the illness is in your mind, but what if the cure is like, what if the solution is, sure, what, yeah. if, what if reversing what's going on in your body is something that's locked in your mind yeah. and how can we kind of approach things from that direction? So see the meridians up there. So yep. check this out. We had uh, Kristen Camella on, who is an ex-chief science officer of a SEMSA research company. Mm -hmm. He said, hey, I'm going to be doing a podcast on meridians of the teeth. Mm -hmm. Can you send me some, some information of who do you think? So she sent me some information. Basically, what it came down to was healing with energy and, and different types of things. But here's a picture right here. It says how your body rebuilds itself in less than 365 days. Mm -hmm. And then it goes DNA, brain, stomach, bones. This is what I'm saying. Like, like man, this is going to be so much fun when you come over because if you can control inflammation, and I know we'll eventually talk about your product, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. That as well as you're able to replenish, mm -hmm. right, and properly get the stuff that's been used up. Not detox. I don't really like that word. Mm -hmm. It makes people sound dirty. It's kind of like gasoline. Once it burns up, it's a waste product. Get rid of it, right? Mm -hmm. So if it's not properly evacuated so new mm -hmm. cells can grow and strive, then that's where chronic disease comes from. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So when I saw that, that was just today. I was like, oh, look at that. Mm -hmm. And then one more book that I'll mention, and I always tell people my love language is book recommendations, <laughs> is um, a book called Anti-Fragile. It's by Nassim Taleb, who I mentioned earlier. He's a Lebanese-American mathematician, a linguist, and a stock trader. He's a he wrote this book as kind of this long 550-page essay on his understanding of the process of anti-fragility. 
And as a, a person who speaks a lot of languages in the Mediterranean region, uh, he says, I looked through all of these languages and there's words everywhere for fragile. Like if I take a wine glass and I drop it on the floor, it's going to shatter into an incalculable number of pieces and mm -hmm. it's never going back to the way it was. Right. I've got words for robust. So I can sit here and I can push on this wall until my finger is a bloody nub and the wall is, it's not going to do anything. Right. right. It's robust. But he couldn't find words in the classic languages for something that is opposite of fragile, for something that actually gets better when you stress it. And so he coined the phrase anti-fragile. Most of the book is in social and economic systems. You know, he's a stock trader and a mathematician. And mm -hmm. So a lot of it has to do with his philosophy on economic systems and the anti-fragility of like human systems as a whole. But there's a biological aspect to it, especially one when he's like defining the, the phrase itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I want a tree to grow taller, I'll prune its lower branches. The tree doesn't grow those branches back. It grows taller and kind of rebounds. If right. I want to build my muscles, I can lift heavy weights and I'm tearing my muscle tissue. It's trauma to my muscle tissue. And my body doesn't just go back to the way it was. It actually rebounds a little bit stronger. And mm -hmm. so this book was really pivotal in helping me flip the story in my mind about how I was viewing my own relationship to the stressors in my environment. I was starting to seek these anti-fragile processes out. It was like sleeping on the ground in my backyard in Phoenix in the summertime, you know, just a couple nights a week just to Very stress cool. myself. And then I was, that's when I started. So you're grounding. You know what grounding Yeah, yeah. grounding and it's uncomfortable, but it's also... You got to shift a lot and, and like seeing at different points. Yeah. And then experimenting with dieting and fasting. I was, you know, getting into ketogenic dieting and extended and intermittent fasting, which, you know, learning about how that cleans out all of those, those, yeah. those, you know, my, those one of my best cells. nutrition advice. Yeah. yeah don't like, eat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Become a breathinarian or breathitarian, right? Right. <laughs> right. Tom Cowan was on our show. He's, he was a family practitioner and this is brilliant. The stupidest advice I've ever heard and the greatest at the same time. If it has a label, don't eat it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Food like, doesn't have ingredients. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm like, you're kidding me, right? Yeah. And he was like, no. No. <laughs> Anything else? He goes, no. <laughs> Besides the water. Right. I remember him during that conversation where he was talking about structurally coherent water. Mm. And I was like, what's that mean? So I remember there was a show... It was on Netflix, I forget the name, but I mentioned it in one of the previous podcasts my daughter was watching with Zach Efron. He was mm. traveling the world. Yeah, yeah, right? we saw that one. Yeah. yeah, and so he was drinking the water. Yeah. And I was like, there's something with water? I'm like, yeah. like there's a, like a water bar? Yeah. Really? I'm yeah. like, come on, man. And so I, I actually <laughs> called that guy up. He said he couldn't do it. I guess he had an NDA with Netflix because that sure. whole film. And right. I was like, oh, no, no problem. Cool. So we ended up finding the folks from Analama Water Wand. Yeah. And that's what you're drinking now. Yeah. And those guys... Yeah. It took 14 years to develop that wand. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. that's part of my equation in helping people. When it comes to liquids, what do you put in your body? Yeah. Is it causing you acidosis or where's your pH levels? The whole yeah. nine yards. I um, generally, my liquid general rule of thumb, and I'm not a Puritan about anything, but generally I say if our species hasn't been drinking it for a thousand years, I don't. <laughs> so it's water, it's black coffee, it's red wine. Mm -hmm. And then when I stray, it's going to be beer and liquors. And I'll do like teas, but those fall into the you know, mm -hmm. thousand year old, but like soda. I, have, I haven't drank any alcohol at all for two years. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, easy. Yeah. That's still the one I lean on a lot, I think. 
I take breaks every now and then. But I'm combat vet, so I drink like an old soldier sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I saw that. I read, that's what a little bit I read about you. I didn't want to get too much into it because I wanted you to tell that story. Sure. I was in the Army for six years. My first job in the Army, I calculated firing data for howitzer cannons. So it's usually it's using trigonometry to figure out how to fire a cannon. And you really are an engineer. My gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then my, uh, my second job, which is the one that I deployed to Iraq with, was I drove and placed Patriot missile launching station. So basically truck driver with a missile launching station attached to the back of it that you in place and yeah, yeah. get all ready to go. No. Wow. I was doing all these things. And this is another part about the nuance of the relationship where I discovered what worked for us was I just started doing things myself, for myself. I wasn't bringing these things to a... So you were the test subject. Yeah, I was testing myself. Because again, when you're trying to help someone maybe experiment with different processes, and again, I'm just experimenting. You know, I didn't know what the results are going to be. Yeah. When you're trying to help someone you know, experiment, a lot of times that can be very invalidated. It seems like you're trying to change them. You know? Right. What do you think? You know better than the doctors? The doctors that indoctrination is crazy, by the way. Is yeah, it not? It's strong. It's very strong. Yeah. And so I, I mean, just decided there is I'm a place. Do it myself. There is a place for for medicine and oh, where absolutely. it's at. The indoctrination and even some of the doctors, it's like, mm. hold on, wait a minute. Or I can't go because you're not okay, that's fine. But what if? So then you have to invite someone gently, like you're talking about, into mm. a new reality. And that new reality could be what if you could achieve it this way? Right. Would you be interested? Yeah. Stop talking. <laughs> Let their mind do the work yeah. and go from there. Yeah. And so that's what I just started doing it myself and, and just, I was determined to use myself as a test subject and to see, you know, what kind of things could I do? What kind of stressors could I get into that would help me rebound into a stronger, more healthy, more well version of myself? Yeah. And Adrian, you know, started following. She saw me doing the fasting and, you know, the low carb, high protein dieting. She started going along and she started seeing her own results. She wasn't sleeping outside on the ground with me. Um, but that whole long process is what led me to my first ice bath, which was October of 2017. There was a yoga instructor in Phoenix named Gordon Ogden, who was doing these sporadic Wim Hof breath work and ice bath um, mm. sessions at his house there. It was like 6 a.m. on Friday mornings, not every Friday morning. You'd get a text message Thursday night saying, hey, we're doing Wim Hof at the house tomorrow, 6 a.m. If you're in, bring two bags of ice. And so that was my first ice bath experience. Um, How was it? It was really powerful and it was really transformative. And I like that we started with the Wim Hof breath work because first of all, the most powerful thing about that was it showed me in ways that I'd never been shown before that I'm capable of more than I thought I was. Mm -hmm. So doing that holotropic deep breathing, yeah, super yeah. oxygenating to the system, and then you hold your breath. And all of a sudden, I'm holding my breath. And it's like two and a half minutes later, I'm like, holy crap, Like I can hold my breath for two and a half minutes. All I have to do is like load my body up with oxygen. My, my body's good for a couple of minutes. I'm much stronger than I thought I was. I'm capable of much more than I thought I was. Mm -hmm. So that was really important before that first ice bath. I'll have to leave this book name in the notes section of this podcast. Mm -hmm. But a friend of mine was telling me there was an archaeologist who studied when the earth was closer to each mm -hmm. other, the land uh, continent mm -hmm. okay, were sure. closer. Continents, yeah. And there was one part of the countries, I don't know what part of it was, where 
you could walk from one island to another island mm-hmm. in about 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so there's no other way of doing it. So they had figured out that people were practicing Wim Hof's method of breathing that far back. Mm. They were actually walking in the water wow. across. And I was like, I had to breathe. Oh, like under the water. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. They're like walking. <laughs> I mean, they were like walking on the ground. On the, on the bottom. Yeah. Like, hold a big rock. Yeah. Okay. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Like, so I've heard the story. I got to read it. I haven't read it for myself, but yeah, I'm going beautiful. to. Yeah. It's very important to just go into that first ice bath with that mindset of I'm capable of doing something that I didn't think I was capable of doing before. My first ice bath, I think it probably lasted 30 or 45 seconds. Uh, it was just enough for me to get past that triggering of the fight or flight response and, and bring myself back to calm to get that rush of neurotransmitters, norepinephrine and dopamine. I would later find out. At the time, I, this was all a visceral experience. This was all just experiential. I hadn't even started to get into trying to understand any of the science or the biology or the psychology or anything like that that was happening. All I knew was I just had a very powerful experience. I got out of that ice bath mm. and I was charged. It was like so many systems were just rebooted yeah, in, in yeah, my yeah. body and in my mind. I'm like, this is it. This is one of those things that I've been looking for. One of these uh, hormetic stress stimuli, which is a phrase that I didn't know at that moment, but would later yeah, learn yeah. that has that potential for for growth for this anti-fragile kind of process of going through something that was uncomfortable and stressful, but that was going to grow me in very powerful ways. Mm. Gordon wasn't doing them regularly and Adrian was still in an office job. I was in an office job with a little bit more of schedule flexibility, but she couldn't show up at 6 a.m. on a Friday. You know, yeah. she was punching a clock. You know, I was going into an office. She had to be somewhere at a certain time. And that right there, too, that, that's a really powerful statement you just said. That, that's yeah. a, a lot of people. Yeah. That's a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, they would love to have that flexibility and have these different options, mm-hmm. and they just can't find the time. Yeah. And that's absolutely. what really was holding them back. And then when you compound that with, if you're married and kids or if you're going to school or if you're working more than one job, mm. it gets to be a lot. It does. Yeah. And I have a lot of compassion for people who are in that system and, and living those lives. Uh, one of my personally most valuable, I guess, biohacks that I've been able to adopt, especially as an entrepreneur, is I don't wake up to alarms anymore. You know, Really? I've probably had three alarms go off on me in the last two years. That audible or are you are you vibrating? I don't do it. I mean, I'm up with no. the sun. Okay. And I, that's, I could probably thank the army for that as well. Yeah. See so you know, that ability to naturally wake up early in the morning. See this watch right here? Yeah. So we had uh, Justin Franson on uh, the show and he wrote the book Athleticism and he okay. talked about the EMF radiation that's actually affecting your arm when you wear a smartwatch. Mm. Just EMF radiation poisoning in general, cellular breakdown, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Real thing. I never knew. 5G, where that is, and how it's not even registered on a metric scale. That's how mm. powerful the signal is. So I was like, all right, I'm done with the Apple Watch then uh, mm. after I read that book. And I was just, yeah, read it, everybody. But I really enjoyed waking up to a vibrating watch. Mm. Mm-hmm. It was nice. It was gentle. And it slowly just woke you up. Sure. I was like, man, I, I just don't want to give up that watch <laughs> for that one reason. I'm like, right. what am I going to do? I think I can turn everything off, but then it's just, maybe I'll just do that. I don't know. Yeah. Then the battery and, you know, the whole thing there. Yeah. So anyways, I went on Amazon and I found this little company. The only thing this thing does, it tells me the time, mm. the date, and how much battery I have left. Sure. 
has an alarm, it has eight different alarms built in and it just vibrates. That's it. Yeah. That's all it does. And when I say this is, I mean, talk about like medial, that's it. Yeah, that's pretty. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm in. So now when I wake up, I think I wake up my wife when I wake up. Yeah. <laughs> but right. when I wake up, I just wake up with this. Yeah. Uh, I'll set the intention the night before if mm-hmm. I want to wake up at four or five or six, whatever time I want to do. I'll back it up with this. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. I you love just, that, man. That's I just great. remembered I had this idea. I started tinkering with it, but I wanted to figure out a way to use like an hourglass that was mechanically attached to a metronome so that <laughs> there was no electricity in the apparatus whatsoever. So, you know, the hourglass would somehow oh, that's funny. like release the hammer on a metronome that would just start clocking back quick. Quick. <laughs> I, I bet Nikola Tesla could have figured out what magnetism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I started thinking about that, but then, you know, got focused on the ice bath. Yeah, um, good but, choice. So Gordon was doing them sporadically. Adrian could never take a part of it. So I started doing my own, you know, the Wim Hof breathing. It's, it's not difficult to replicate. You know, it's pretty easy once you've done it a couple of times to teach other people how to do it. Mm. And so I got my own galvanized steel tub. I took it to my backyard in Phoenix, Arizona when I was doing my own little breath work and ice bath sessions on Sundays. Adrian's first ice bath was nine seconds. Uh, now, what degree? It was probably low to mid 40s. We didn't have a whole lot of ice. There wasn't any ice in the ice bath. It was just cold water. It was very cold water coldest she'd ever been in and i still have a video of this somewhere um and (laughs) collateral right yeah well and she loves telling the story as well and this is kind of the birth story of her method which is this is not the way she does it anymore her first ice bath she got over the tub and she's like like hovering over it with like foot here foot here hand here hand here and she just drops herself in and like holds her breath for as long as she was like nine seconds and then like jumps out of it. And, uh, you know, it's like this very uh, aggressive baptism by cold. But she'll tell you, she's like, you know, it was cold. It was shocking. It was uncomfortable. But she got out and she felt amazing, amazing in a way that she hadn't felt in years. Because yeah. a lot of this process was chronic pain. There was a lot of weight gain. There was a lot of inflammation. There was a lot of pain in her legs. Sometimes she just really couldn't even stand to drive a car. It was so bad. And um, she said all that pain was just gone. And it was gone for you know many hours before it started to creep back in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the same time, I'd, I'd also brought in uh, my, my friend and a former professor of mine, who's now our business partner, Tom Seeger. He's a professor of engineering at Arizona State University. That's how he and I met. We worked together. I worked for him as a TA for a number of years in undergrad. I had shown him this cold immersion thing that I was getting into as well, because uh, he was into taking cold showers at the time. He's a research scientist. He started actually looking into the literature, started you know putting dots together about, hey, this isn't just some sort of like neat party trick where Johnny can sit in an ice bath for two minutes and everybody thinks he's a crazy dude. There's some things behind this. There's systems that this is working on. There's the vasomotor response. There's the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system response. There's the neurotransmitter response, the immune system response, and all these things can connect together in ways that just can lead a person. It it sounds like a reset. Yeah, it is a reset. Yeah. I don't know if you know or heard of him, Alan Goldhammer. He'd been on Rich Roll. A couple other folks. He's the doctor well known or most known for water fasting only. Okay. We actually titled that podcast The Body's Great Reset. Mm-hmm. And 
for inflammation, I could see this being the same thing. Mm-hmm. They just removed everything and just gave them structured water. Yeah. They medically supervised them to make mm-hmm. sure that if someone was overweight or diabetic, insulin level, things like that. Yeah. And these people in 28 days were, when I say like they were just turning the corner, mm-hmm. complete new person. Mm-hmm. And then they would introduce food again in a way that was according to blood type, plant-based, the whole nine yards. The body just reset. Mm-hmm. All together. Yeah, I believe it. It's amazing. I have known a couple of people that have done, I know one woman who did a 28 day under medical supervision. Yeah. And then I met a guy once who did 40. Oh, really? Yeah. I was like, that's biblical. He's like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, Jesus did that, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything in the Bible happened in 40 days and 40 nights. So we're getting into the science and we decided we wanted to be able to do this more often. You know, we were doing it once a week. Uh, you, you can go to the store, get 200 pounds of ice. You know, it's getting to be, you know, spring, summer in Phoenix, Arizona in 2018. So mm-hmm. those 150, 120 degree days are coming. I was out in my pool in the wintertime. Yeah. It hits like 50. Yeah. And I'm loving it. So I'm in the water. Yeah. And my wife's watching me and I'm like, and, you know, it's pretty chilly, pretty cold. Yeah. I've been in colder water when I was in college when I played college football and the sure. ice baths for the ankles yeah. and knees and stuff like that. I could have taken a little bit more. I get the point where you're just like, when the spring came and I'm like, you know, it's like 68, 70, I'm like, yeah, it's not the same. Right. You know, I yeah. really enjoyed that cold water a yeah. lot. We wanted to be able to do it more often. We wanted to do it without having to go to the store, buying 200 pounds of ice. Started making ice blocks. Uh, I, had this, <laughs> I had this big freezer in the backyard and I was taking these Costco pretzel containers and these like big Costco jumbo salsa containers and the pretzel containers, I was cutting the tops of them off. And so I could fill it with water and like put and stack them up in this freezer. And then I take them and I, I'd shimmy the blocks out and stack the blocks up and refill them again. And it was still taking all week long. And the only thing that I'd skipped is the store. And I was spending like two hours a day doing it, but I had like ice blocks. And so I just tossed like the ice blocks in there. Yeah. Um, we wanted to be able to do it every day. I started tinkering around with uh, refrigeration mechanics in the backyard. I was tearing apart dorm fridges. I just wanted to figure out like, what makes the cold? And from my engineering degree, I understand that cold doesn't actually exist. Cold is the absence of thermal energy. Right. So you take thermal energy out of something and the default is cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm like, how, where's the part that takes the thermal energy out of the enclosed section and dissipates it to the environment? Because that's, that's absolutely what's got to be happening here. So I tore apart a dorm fridge. I got this little you know, plate out that I had determined was the cold maker, which I would later find out is called an evaporator coil. And the first proof of concept experiment was I tore this thing out of the back of a refrigerator. These things are not designed to come apart at all. And so I'm just like hammering away, chiseling away, getting this damn thing out of the On back. the coil? Yeah. Well, no, on the, on the refrigerator <laughs> on the itself, itself, on like the box <laughs> itself. And so I could tell, I can pull this thing out. And then I had this little styrofoam cooler. I put water in it. I put that in there. I put the styrofoam lid on top. I plugged it in. And I left it overnight and came back the next morning and I turned that water into an ice block. I'm like, okay, so it can work like this. And so I tore apart two or three more refrigerators. I took my galvanized steel tub. I poured a bed of sand. Um, on my back patio, I uh, put the tub on top of the bed of sand, built a little pine enclosure around it and used like $400 worth of spray foam insulation, like cans from Home Depot and just yeah. insulated aside. One of the, I tore apart that tall freezer that I was using to make the ice blocks. 
which was, it was like a three day process. And like at the last day, I actually broke a coil and all the refrigerant escaped out, which was really disheartening. Um, but I took the door from that and I just sat it on top. And so I had two of these evaporator coils, like over the side of this insulated tub with a refrigerator door on top. It's Phoenix in the summertime. It's 120 degrees. And three days later, I had a 33 degree bath. And I'm like, okay, now I've got my all the time ice bath. I can yeah. do this whenever I want. And so this is the story of us solving our own problems, right? At the same time, we're also getting into social media. We're following hashtags, Wim Hof, ice bath, biohacking, or whatever we can find out there. Cause we want to, we're curious, like who else is out there yeah, tinkering yeah, yeah. with this stuff? And we kept seeing a lot of people out there. We understood like there's right. this growing culture. And I kept seeing the same Costco salsa containers. It's like somebody with a hashtag ice bath is like, look, I'm making ice blocks with my salsa container from Costco. (laughs) You know, we're not just solving our own problems here. We're solving a problem that a lot of people are trying to solve. A lot of people are trying to get cold at home and do it more often. Trying to solve that problem of how do I do this without buying two, 300 pounds of ice every day. Mm. This is when we kind of woke up to the idea like this this is a company and this is a product. We're solidifying our scientific knowledge of what's really going on here. Mm-hmm. We've got a really ugly prototype that we can we can tinker with and we can clean up and we can move forward into a product. I'm going to need that picture from you so we can put it in the YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got them. And I actually destroyed the original to make room for more prototyping, but we still, <laughs> we wrote on it Forge 1 in Sharpie, and then we've still got that little cutout. Of now, why the name Forge? Where that yeah. come from? So Forge uh, is the second word in the company name, and we can start there. Forge has a couple of different connotations to it. You can you can forge ahead, which is kind of like you know it has this idea of going through something um, uncomfortable. You can forge a river. You can forge through a jungle. Forge is also a place. It's a shop where um, metal is put through a process. That mm. you take iron and you. Heat it, you pound it, fold it, come out with steel, right? So this is, interestingly, one of the only anti-fragile processes that I know of that happens on dead material. Most anti-fragile processes happen with living, with life. Life is Mm -hmm. anti-fragile. But peat iron in a forge through the process of taking iron and turning it into steel, this is an anti-fragile process as well. And so in this interesting way where we're not using heat, but we're using cold to kind of forge our bodies, it's almost like pounding our bodies with a stressor and then we come out, you know, stronger. And then, of course, the first word in the company name is Mrozko, uh, which is a Russian fairy tale. And Mrozko is like a, a Jack Frost or Father Winter type character. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You ever seen, uh, what was the name? It's a cartoon. I love it. The Guardians. Yeah. Right with Jack Frost and, and yeah, Santa, yeah, 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 and yeah. Uh-huh. great kids movie. Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, love it. Yeah. Love and it. if you Google uh, Morozko, um, you'll get a lot of that little version of Jack Frost from that because that movie in other languages, uh-huh. um, that character's name is Morozko. Uh-huh. Um, we actually started with Jack Frost. I was thinking like Jack Frost Forge or something like that, but yeah, we yeah. wanted something a little less obvious and something that called to a deeper mythology. And uh, there's a story that goes along with the Russian mythology. And uh, it's kind of a wicked stepmother fairy tale. So there's a little girl. She lives in the Russian forest with her father, her wicked stepmother, and her nasty stepsister. Stepmother and stepsister don't like her very much. They're very jealous of the girl. And so stepmother 
sends the girl out into the middle of the forest to get lost. So she's sitting in the middle of a clearing, and it's cold, and she's shivering, and she's freezing to death, and Morotsuko is coming around. He's freezing things, because that's what he does. He brings the cold to the forest every year. And he comes upon the little girl, and he's about to freeze her, and he stops first, and he asks her, he says, child, are you warm? The little girl answers him with stoicism and grace, and says, yes, dear Morotsuko, I'm warm enough. And so he doesn't freeze her, because he's impressed with her. And instead, he brings her into his cottage, makes her princess of the forest, gives her all these jewels and all these gifts. And somehow the stepmother catches wind of this, that not only is the little girl not dead, but Morotsuko has made her princess of the forest and given her lots of jewels and lots of gifts. Mm. She says, I know what I'll do. I'll recreate this. I'll send my own daughter out into the forest. Morotsuko will find her, make her a princess, and give her jewels and gifts. So she does this. And the stepsister is sitting in the middle of the forest, and she's cold and she's shivering, and Morotsuko finds her. And he's about to freeze her, and he asks her, child, are you warm? But this little girl's not stoic, and she's not gracious, and so she kind of mouths off to him, and so he freezes her. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is a fairy tale that like, probably... Like attracts like yeah, mom yeah, and daughter. Yeah. This is probably a fairy tale that it was you know, to get Russian children to not complain about being Russian children in the middle of the winter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But what we take from the mythology is that if you meet the cold with stoicism and grace, it can bestow great gifts upon you. As our culture kind of moved away from the, the Wim Hof holotropic breathing, and as Adrian found her own way of guiding herself through the cold, it was from that stoic and graceful, kind of reserved, calm, mindful place. And we've really found that meeting the cold from that direction has so much benefit, adds so much benefit to the therapy. You can stay in longer. Mm -hmm. It's not the traumatizing experience Adrian had, like hovering over the tub yeah, yeah, and yeah. dropping herself. In. You're actually feeling refreshed and you don't want to get out anymore. Yeah. It's it's yeah. it's retraining the, the neurological pathways to associate the stimulus with a different response. Mm. And it helps us not only develop uh, a deeper, more aligned, more craving, cold practice, we can take that pause and that response versus reaction into the rest of our lives. And all of a sudden, you can respond better to traffic. You can respond better to the kids running around like chickens with their heads cut off. You mm -hmm. can respond better to whatever relationship issues might be coming up. Um, you know, you, hmm. you just start to train that space in between the yeah. stimulus. I can tell you have a very calm demeanor and just and persona <laughs> about you as well. Especially when I first met you, it was like very just, you're in control. Oh, like you, you, you got it. Yeah. Right? It's really cool. It's really, really cool. So what's your longest time limit in the cold water? Uh, mine? Yeah. Uh, I recently did 22 and a half minutes. You have competitions with us? Uh, Rogan uh, recently got one of our units and Joe Rogan and um, he did 20 minutes. It was like his third ice bath ever, which I don't recommend. Like if you're just getting started out, like don't, don't do what Joe Rogan did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he, well, his personality type, like if yeah. you, anything worth doing, <laughs> worth go, overdoing, he's going to go to extreme. Yeah. With it all. And he did that because Jocko Wilnick sent him a video of his son in an ice bath, for like 20 minutes, which I'm guessing wasn't Jocko's son's first cold immersion yeah. experience either. So Joe Rogan did 20 minutes and like about a week after that, I got a, a wild hair. And so I did 22 and a half minutes. And then my buddy, Justin Wren, who's an MMA fighter, he did like 33 minutes and 30 seconds or something like that. Oh, he's, wow. been doing it. he's been doing this for years as well. I mean, yeah. Justin Wren's been doing cold immersion a lot longer than I have. I remember the coldest I've ever 
went in college. Now I would go in the the cold tubs. You know, yeah, yeah. we want to sit on. I sure. get up to like midnight. Yep. I don't know, maybe like eleven, twelve minutes with a toe cap. Uh, the mm-hmm. water. I remember the water was like something like 45, 44 degrees, mm-hmm. my lowest I've ever gone. Yeah. That's the coldest I've ever gone. Yeah. Uh, when you get out, you're like, oh my gosh, I want to go back in. Yeah. That's the best feeling. You're like, yeah. uh, it, it, you really feel like, like everything's new. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We get former athletes and Adrian, she coaches some professional athletes. Again, going back to this meeting the cold with stoicism and grace, we've gotten so many people who will go through. Uh, a guided session with Adrian and she really works on people like to not have, to not be anxious before going in. You know, mm-hmm. if you're dreading it going in, then you're going to take that dread with you. Yeah, yeah. And to, you know, but however long you stay in there, when you get out, do so mindfully and with intention, you know, don't just run out because you're running from, from something. When you get out to you know, stand tall and proud, stand accomplished, you know, don't shiver up and shrink into yourself. And it's all to retrain the neural pathways. But we'll get people who will say, like, yeah, I did, I did ice baths when I played sports in college. And this was a completely different experience. You know, I'm used to coach yelling at him, like, Johnson, get your butt in the cold tub, you know, and it's like that, that traumatizing experience, you know, and to do it from, from that more like yogic state, that more mindful state, like, it's completely different. When I go again, like, I stay in until, and again, I'm like, I'm a Rogan type. So if anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Yeah. So I go in there and, when I feel my bones starting to uh, sure, like that, yeah. that's when I get out. Yeah. But I can feel it coming on. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I got about a minute, minute or two left. I'll be in there easy, like 12, 14 minutes, no mm-hmm. problem. You know, mm-hmm. as I was going in more frequently during the week, I was like, man, I can go a little colder. <laughs> so my wife wants to get a hot tub and I'm like, let's get a cold tub. <laughs> so I'm working on it, dude. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Yeah. And the shiver response. Whenever somebody's doing a cold immersion or an ice bath, that shiver response, if you're shivering and you can't stop it, it's time to get out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when I'm talking my shiver, yeah, it's what you would call bone chattering. I'm yeah. like, oh, and yeah. it's, it's I almost a precursor to hypothermia. Yeah. That means it's time to get out yeah. and warm up. It's almost like I can't control my body at that point when I was being foolish. Mm-hmm. But then now I caught on and I'm like, okay, it's time for me to get out. And I come out. But for the rest of the day, Oh my gosh. Cause right now going into the winter months, I'm like, yay. Yeah. <laughs> I can jump in the pool again, you know? Absolutely. So let me ask you this. So now it's controlling inflammation. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, why don't you go back to her story real quick? So she had a recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she, you know, through the dieting, through the cold immersion, through the, the finding that stoic mentality, which was helping, you know, you get the neurotransmitter boost from the cold, the norepinephrine and dopamine, which is a great natural antidepressant, anti-anxiety. So it's helping her mental state, which, you know, there's the cold helping the body. And then there's the mind free of the stress and the anxiety, which can then like start to heal itself from the mental process. Mm. Um, she's weaning herself off of supplements. She's weaning herself off of medications. And the, the final thing was, um, she weaned herself off of the synthetic hormone. Um, and she didn't even tell me about this. We were, Excellent. we were at Burning Man in 2019 and yeah. we took a, a cold unit out there, which was great. And she told me, she's like, yeah, just so you know, I haven't taken my Synthroid in like two months. She's like, I didn't even bring any with me out, wow. to, the, out to the middle of the Nevada desert. I was like, whoa, like, you know, I was just in that moment, I was like tears. I was like so proud of her and her strength and her courage to do that as of mid to uh, you know, late summer, early fall of 2019, 
completely medication and supplement free. And she went back to her endocrinologist for her annual checkup. I think maybe it was like four or six weeks later. So this is going to be September, October of 2019. And she didn't know if she was going to tell her endocrinologist, but she ended up telling her endocrinologist, like, just so you know, I've been working on my dieting. I've been fasting. I've been doing a lot of ice baths and just a lot of like working on my own mentality. And I haven't been taking my synthroid for months. And what was that response like? So the endocrinologist, I wasn't in the office, so I'm telling a story of someone who's telling a story. Uh, the first thing that the endocrinologist did is she came into the room and thought that the weight on the chart was wrong. First thing that Adrian did, she lost all the weight. She lost the 50 pounds. Yeah. And the endocrinologist comes in. She's like, oh, this is right. You, you have lost 50 pounds in the last year. I'm like, that's, that's great. What have you been doing? Well, I've been watching my carbs and sugars, uh, <laughs> fasting, uh, doing a lot of ice baths and really just trying to flip the story that I tell myself about, you know, who I am in this world and who's really in control. And the chronologist makes some notes as well. All right, let's do some blood work and see, you know, where things are at. You look great. You seem like you feel great. Let's take a look at the blood work. She gets the blood draw. She goes back in for the results and the endocrinologist says, there's no trace of autoimmune in your system. The oncologist says, I, uh, I'm here for you um, if you need anything. But other than that, I hope I never see you again. Wow. Uh, and that was a very interesting process for Adrian because that at first it was very triumphant. It was like, yeah, I broke free. You know, I, I did the thing that was impossible. There was also a grieving process. There was a grieving process. Adrian had to grieve herself as a chronically sick person. Oh, uh, yeah. And there was yeah. an anger phase of that grieving process. That was her identity for a it long time. It was her identity for yeah. a long time. And you had to existentially bury that person. That's part of the work that we do, too. Yeah. Uh, we go back in time and talk to those people and thank them for taking on the hit and doing the work so this person who's standing in front of us now can resurrect and be who they are for their authentic self. Yeah. Very important. Absolutely. Right there. Very important. Yeah. A lot of athletes go through that same thing when they're done with college sports. Yeah. Who am I now? It's yeah. Like it's like, there. well, if I'm not this athlete or whatever or anything, anything that you've yeah. achieved high success with and then it's gone, yes. it doesn't have to be sports. Most people adapt to sports easier. That's what I've been doing for X amount of time, but it's not who you are. Yeah. Thank you for getting me where you've gotten me. Absolutely. And the anger phase of the grieving process came when that comment that the endocrinologist made that I hope I never see you again. Initially, that's like, you did it. You, you broke free. You don't need to be the patient of an endocrinologist anymore. Mm. But if the endocrinologist was a woman of science, a woman of curiosity, why wouldn't she want to know more? Yeah. Why was she like, get out of my office, you heretic? Like, Adrian started to wonder, like, how many other people were sitting in the waiting room who could have benefited from some of this knowledge, you know, who are just going back to the endocrinologist over and over again to get the synthetic hormone, the chronic medication over and over and over again. We said it in this podcast, I don't know how many times, but we'll say it again. No one gets paid if yeah. you're well. Yeah. It's not the business model. It's not the business model. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's unfortunate that it's like that, but as long as you know, you know, Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Adrian's first podcast was herself just kind of telling this story, downloading it one night into like a, a recording on her cell phone. 
the one thing that she wondered is why wouldn't the endocrinologist want to know more? Why wouldn't the endocrinologist want to share any of this with her patients? And the other thing is, has somebody else done this that the endocrinologist knew of and was withholding that information from me? Yeah. Uh, so that's where a lot of the anger came from. And then once Adrian kind of started projecting uh, what she had done to the world, you know, it had reversed herself. They don't like you to say cure, reversed the autoimmune condition, gotten off of the medication. Then you start finding the other people who've done it. Well, part of that model though, right? This is, I repeat a lot of things in the show because we constantly trying to make sure that it's a clean, clear, consistent message. Mm. I don't have documentation. All I have is verbal story. So everyone knows on this show, like it's, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. I bring everyone on. I don't care about race, politics. It doesn't, those things don't exist in my brain. Mm -hmm. Get a story, say it. Right. There's your audience, right? These people that I know that are doctors, they would tell me when they go to these conferences, they would go to, let's say it was lecture A, B, or C, right? But lecture D is always with the lawyers. And the lawyers are saying, look, like if you put these patients on meds or this and this, and they scare the shit out of these doctors saying, if you don't follow these rules, if you don't do this, if you don't, then you're not going to be covered. You're going to be sued. You're going to have uh, loss of liability, all these things. And they scare them into the state that they're in. Yeah. So again, like no one gets no paid if you're well. Yeah. That's the thing. And on top of that, I know for a fact, based on the people that have told me that story, if they have a sick patient, they actually investigate it, become curious, then it's like, it's a no-no. Yeah. They're not supposed to do that. It's yeah. okay, you better. Okay, good for you. Thank you. Next patient. Right. That's it. Yeah. I hope I never see you again. And even the word hope there, right? Yeah. It's such a false positive, I hope. Like that, that, you know, that it could, it could pop back in, right? Right. Ugh. Yeah. It's frustrating. And yeah, I, I understand that. And like you said, a lot of medical professionals are, are threatened into that compliance. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and a lot of them are just of that cultural mindset that this is the way that, you know, anybody who steps out of the way, they're, they're placebo group. They're, you know, they're the outlier. It's the, you know, it's not regarded as uh, reliable, repeatable, data-driven, or anything mm. like that. Now, her particular diet, what worked for her? She started with a anti-inflammatory diet called the Walls Protocol. She's a doctor named Terry Walls, and I believe... W-A-L-L or W-A-H-L? Uh, I think it's W-A-H-L. Okay. It was very plant-heavy. It was a lot of food which was, was one thing that was hard to... And let me tell you a quick story. The person who helped me develop to where I'm, where I'm at right now, I didn't get this left knee pain. No, I had ruptured meniscus, 90% removed, it's completely healed. Mm -hmm. Like nothing ever happened. But I would still get knee pain. I'm like, man, what's this? So the meridian point in the gallbladder, I tried the intermittent fasting, the higher protein, lower carb, all that whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't realize was I was doing it too long. Uh, intermittent fasting as well. Mm. I was, uh, what I call processing. Mm. So you let your body process for 14 to 16 hours. So you, it's using everything up, gallbladder everything up. Because I wasn't eating enough carbs, the gallbladder was offline. Mm. The liver wasn't doing its function uh, in relationship to the stomach. The gallbladder wasn't then breaking down the fats, causing the meridian point in the knee to act up and flare up. Mm. That's where I'm going this week. Wife, like, what was she doing for a diet? And then what was she doing for like acupuncture, meridian type stuff, 
that was realigning and reconnecting or bringing back online her organs in relationship mm. to the different parts of one offline. The, sure. the body's amazing as far as what it will do to mm. keep itself alive. I mean, there's one rule for the body, survival. Protect the heart and brain at all costs, mm. period. And your body will come up with all these different doodads, knee pain, ankle pain, low back pain, to protect the heart and the brain at mm. all costs. When I work with our systems, and this is where I was like, man, like this would be really cool to talk about. I'm already playing with people in my head. I'm like, all right, what about this? What if they did an ice bath here? Mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, really with cool. anything that intricate and knowledgeable is <laughs> more like tinkering. Yeah. Um, and she started with the walls protocol, but that one, it was very, very plant heavy and it was a lot of food and it didn't really, it started to reduce the inflammation a little bit. What I was experimenting with was the high protein, low carb, low sugar, and intermittent and extended fasting. And she started to kind of fall in step with that. One of the powerful things to realize there is to learn to separate the difference between a carb craving and what actual hunger is. Mm-hmm. Because if you're raised on carbohydrates and sugars and it's that, you know, three meals a day, snacks in between, you know, our parents didn't know. It's die off. It's yeast die off. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, here's your, here's your gummy fruit snacks in between your ramen noodle soup and your spaghetti dinner yeah. <laughs> and with the chips in between. And when you're raised that way, what you understand to be hunger is not really hunger. It's mm-hmm. that, that craving of that carb cycle, mm-hmm. breaking that. I liken it to when I smoked cigarettes. I smoked cigarettes. I smoked a pack a day from age 15 to 29. Wow. Just naturally organic. I was about to turn 30 years old and something clicked in my brain. I was like, you're just done. I'm done with this. I'm done doing this. I don't want to do this anymore. You stopped. It wasn't my first attempt ever to quit, but it was the first attempt where I really wanted to. I wasn't quitting because I felt like I should. I wasn't quitting because the cost of packs of cigarettes were astronomically rising through the 90s. And I told myself, I can't afford it anymore. An addict will always find a way to afford it. I used to buy cigarettes for my father. Yeah. (laughs) Now I grew up in Boston and right next door to my house was a bar. Right. So my father would send me over there. He said, hey, go get me a pack of Lucky Strikes. Lucky Strikes were the filterless cigarettes. Right? Yeah. Remember the machines that you would pull out? It was one of those. I remember it was like a dollar and a quarter, a dollar fifty a pack. Right. And then I hadn't done it for a long, long time. And then went back over there. It was five bucks. I was like, five bucks. So I was like, what? That was like 7.25 <laughs> or something by the time I finally quit. I don't know. Yeah. I'm like, holy <laughs> shit. But I liken the breaking of the emotional addictive process to carbohydrates to breaking the addictive emotional process to nicotine. Like it had to be a clean break and a significant one enough so that I could understand the difference between what my body is actually, actually needs and what that kind of addictive cycle. Now, were you heavier when you were smoking or lighter? What was your body weight like? I was lighter probably. Um, I've never been a, a heavy guy. I think I weighed 130 pounds until I got to the army when I was 19. And then I came out of basic training at about 155, 160. I think I'm at like 180 right now. Okay. But I've never really been much heavier. I'm probably the heaviest now that I've really ever been. Because you're working a lot. Working and traveling <laughs> a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's been a lot of sitting, a lot of driving, a lot of airplanes. So I'm really not even in the shape that I want to be in. So understanding the difference between hunger and 
craving carbs was very important. And like I said earlier, we're not Puritans about anything. You know, we eat carbs, you know, which is good because we believe in the volatility of things of not just being like you were saying, like if you're just going to be in ketosis 24 seven, 365, that's got its own externalities and things like that. Yeah. But at first kind of going a little bit hard with that until we were able to separate that, you know, experiential, that feeling in the gut and in the nervous system. Uh, do I really need food or is it just because I ate bread last night? Yeah, yeah, I ate yeah, bread yeah, last yeah. night and that's why I feel this way this morning. And mm-hmm. that's no reason to go get a bagel and to, you know, go from the bagel to that feeling you're going to have at lunchtime and then you're going to have more bread or some pasta or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, understanding that that bell that goes off is not actually your body needing nutrition. It's your body wanting another hit of those carbohydrates. And so it's easier to say, okay, I had the pizza last night. I knew that I was going to feel this way this morning. That doesn't mean I have to go back and eat a pizza a day again or smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was very important uh, for that dietary process. So generally, we're about one meal a day. You know, we probably average about a meal and a half a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the road, it's a little difficult because yeah. you go to a new city and you want to experience the food. Yeah. <laughs> so right now, I, my wife and I, we, we probably won't, uh, when I say like break our fast or introduce food into our day mm-hmm. until at least 10 or 11 o'clock. Uh, but I'm done by six. Okay. So my eating window is six hours. Sure. So I don't limit like one meal or two meals, mm-hmm. I eat when I'm hungry. Right. If I'm hungry, like, and I'll say, am I hungry or do I just need water? Right. I believe, and I, I practice this myself, everything's testable. So sure. I'm like, am I hungry or am I, am I thirsty? And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just, what does my body need? Your body physiology will tell you as long as you know how to test it and you have trust, mm-hmm. faith, and grace into that system that you're using for yourself. Mm-hmm. So I know like right now, am I hungry? No, thirsty? Yes. Mm-hmm. I can tell. So I'll use those different types of systems there, but everything, and that's even where clients that come in, it's everything's testable. Okay. Where are you? Boom. Okay. Injury recalls, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And we'll start working with the different systems. So where on the psycho-emotional relationship, mm-hmm. when did that take a turn for the better? Uh, for the marriage? Yeah. For the marriage. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Well, right after she told you she was stopping taking the synthetic hormones? Um, I mean, before that. Before that? Uh, yeah. You know, at the same time, we were building a business together. So that's just a different kind of stressor and a different opportunity for my for, wife and I have those conversations yeah. <laughs> too. <laughs> but I get it. As she was feeling better, um, and as she was experiencing better outcomes, as she was starting to feel better about her own looks and her own, you know, weight, I told her, even when she was at her heaviest, I'm like, you're beautiful to me. Like, you know, you're still beautiful to me. And like, and you're not even the heaviest woman I've ever been with. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and, she's, you know, and so I don't want to seem like, you know, I was like some guy cracking the whip over her physical size. It was just, that's a symptom of how she was feeling about herself, how she was physically feeling about herself, how she was emotionally feeling about herself. And so for her to reverse that was she was feeling better about herself, yeah, she was yeah. feeling better in her own body, which just can lead to better marriage outcomes and relationship outcomes. My wife, she had her, um, so Michelle, you'll meet her when we're done, right? So mm-hmm. she had a gallbladder removed a few years back. Mm-hmm. What was it? But, he, but maybe like three months ago, four months ago, she started getting like gold around her eyes. Mm-hmm. I'm noticing this gold. Though, well, she's actually noticing this gold. And I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> I truly love it. Cause it looks like this golden 
uh, like sparkly like uh, eyeliner mascara, okay. and I'm like, wow. I'm like, you should like keep going with that. <laughs> but like, it's doing it for me, babe. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm like, I really like it. She's like, oh, you know, it's like, no, I don't know if I like it. I'm like, I love it. I'm like, I really truly love it. Right. The other day, she said, well, it's getting a little bit worse. And I said, let's like, let's let's dig into this. So she found out actually what it was, and I say, okay, let's let's break that down. So I did some testing. I was like, oh, it's your gallbladder. Mm. Of course, it's your gallbladder. Because what's the responsibility of your gallbladder? Break down fats. Yeah. If you have an organ removed, and most people don't know this, but if you have an organ removed, your body doesn't know that. Right. So I said, your body is still working the same because it doesn't know it's gone. Her body's holographic. It has to put the fat somewhere. Mm. And that's where it's putting it. Yeah. She's like, that means it's going to go somewhere else? I'm like, probably. Yeah. So taking red beets, different supplementation that way, that will help break down those fats in replace of the gallbladder. Mm. And she's like, okay, so we're going to start doing that. Nice. I love the gold. I love the gold. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, I got gold in my eyes. Yeah, we're going to do this to, to help you out there, but then here's some, here's some gold eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of, and I said this in episode 99, where's the song? We were making a joke out of it. So now we had Dr. Tom Levy on the show. He was episode 91. Mm-hmm. And we talked about a lot about the nebulized hydrogen peroxide. The name of the podcast is Nature's Natural Antibiotic. So mm-hmm. it wipes it all out. Like it literally just wipes it all out. So when I get off a plane, I'm nebbing. Mm-hmm. immediately i'm cleaning up my evacuative system um, my lungs all of it because of all the aerosols and everything else they, chemically that has i mean if if i was to test myself now and think about playing and go weak mm-hmm. it's that bad for your body the nebbing going up so my eyelashes are gold yeah see that. because they're bleached yeah from the peroxide, the peroxide yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one day i was like what the hell <laughs> and Michelle actually figured it out. She was like, yeah, it's the peroxide. Yeah, the and the neb's here, and yeah, I, I don't know. Bit, I just, yeah, I got bit. a little eye irritation here, and then no big deal, but you're out, and we're in Florida. It's sunny all the time. Sure. Interesting. <laughs> Dad has gold eyelashes. Yeah, nice. <laughs> That's fun. That's cool, man. Because things have continued to improve between us. And a lot of that is. You know, learning how to how to work together, how to give space for each other, and you know, separate tasks and, and, and learn. You know, when you're starting a business, of like whose task is it, and not to always like try to swoop in and yeah, and, yeah. Like, and take something. I, I could take some notes on that for sure. Yeah. So let me ask you this: the courses that she's teaching now, right? How is it structured, and what is she teaching? Uh, so she, uh, you know, I've never actually taken her course. I've witnessed her coach many, many, many people through, and she'll even say that she uses a little bit of hypnosis. But a lot of it is just kind of sharing her experience, her story, a little bit of the science that we've developed. The coaches that she's training have a little bit of a background in, you know, what is this actually doing? What is the system working on? Mm. She instructs a little bit on structuring their own coaching businesses as a business, like, Mm. you know, Here's what you should charge. Here's different things that you da 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 da, and then it's oh, so people are buying the units and then having people come through for therapy sessions and stuff. Uh, some buy the units, yeah. yeah. Some just use their own other solutions. Whether it's just uh, setting up a, an event with one tub and, and a bunch of ice or, or mm. things like that. Her style is rooted a lot in dialectical behavioral therapy. So she engages people's senses. She'll do it with scents, with sounds. She uses singing bowls. She'll use like some uh, fruit flavored waters and things like that. So really grounding a person using their senses to ground them into a moment, which is how she helps them 
transcend that uh, anxiety and stress that can come before a person takes their first ice bath. Mm. A lot of it is to help people develop their own style. She doesn't try to keep people, her own coaching clients, her goal is not to keep them coming back chronically the way that the endocrinologist was. She wants people to, after, you know, three to six sessions to have that practice, that self-led practice. And so a lot of it is like, how can you launch somebody into their self-led deliberate cold exposure practice so that they can get that empowerment on their own? She does have uh, guided meditations that she has recordings of that people will pull up and like have her mm-hmm. right there talking them through. It's really amazing. That's kind of my explanation of her course. And again, um, I haven't attended it, but I have witnessed her coach hundreds and hundreds of people through. They have amazing experiences. And one of the things that I really like is that her methodology is very resonant with uh, the feminine. And so if you look at recordings of Wim Hof events, they're generally pretty male-led. You know, the the women are are kind of the minority in Mm -hmm. that culture. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I don't believe that we have to shrink spaces for the masculine in order to create spaces for the feminine. It's a big world out there. We can have both. And so I do love that her methodology and style really resonates with the feminine. And it's, you know, most of her clients are female. And I've seen her get so many, so many, so many people through their first ice bath to two minutes. Like in their first one, like her first one was nine seconds. Mine was like 45 seconds. And she will get people in there for their first time through a two-minute ice bath. Yeah. And they will have an amazing experience. It's all about the breath. It's about the breath and it's about the mentality. Yeah. Um, she, that's why she always coaches people. And you definitely they, can't jump in. But when I jumped in the pool, I'm like, woohoo. She's like, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? I but, mean, sometimes that's fun, but yeah, after I have a practice. But when she's... When she's guiding people and they're most all the time first timers, it's all about being mindful and calm going in, mm-hmm. being mindful and calm going out. And she always has people stand in a position called arms akimbo. It's a power pose. It's like feet a little wider than shoulder width, hands on the fist, shoulders back, chest out, chin up like this. And she uh, got this from a book called What Everybody Is Saying. And it's by a former FBI agent named Joe Navarro. And so he's like this master of body language. And yeah, things yeah. Like that. There's and been a lot of TED Talks on that. Power poses yeah, power and things poses like that. Yeah, things like that. Uh-huh. And again, this is all about helping to train the neurological pathways to associate that stimulus with a powerful response, with a proud response, with not a, a running from or shrinking into the self response. And yeah, yeah, yeah. People just have amazing experiences when she guides I've, them. um... My only cold exposure is from my own pool. I want to say dead of the winter, but it's going to be late in November or December where it starts to get cool enough. I now just walk into the pool slowly, yeah. not to cause a lot of ripples, mm-hmm. and just settle in. Yeah. It's breath. It's all about the breath yep. for me. And I'm calm and cool. And as soon as I start feeling that little shiver, that little shake, I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, about two minutes left. And then I just slowly walk out, mm-hmm. put a towel on, yep. and I'm good. That's yeah, it's, it. It's so important to to have that focus you know calm mind state yeah and i'll still jump actually i close my eyes too that that actually helps a lot and i will drift interesting yeah i will Uh, drift and i'll see patterns and i'll connect to the all and i was just talking about i think it was ben greenfield was talking to us about that on the podcast we did with him about the difference between people 
keeping their eyes open and people closing their eyes. Mm -hmm. A lot of people keep their eyes open because it's grounding. They can like keep an eye on everything around them. But if you can develop a practice of closed eyes, it can Mm -hmm. be a little bit different. So I bring my dog for a walk every morning across the street. The HOA here has, they have like leash things and I have authority issues. So (laughs) when it comes to that, I'm like, I have a 15 pound dog and I'm telling you, this dog will not leave my side. Right. Right. And it it goes to the bathroom right there. It goes to the bathroom again. I pick it up. Yeah. Right. I'm like, I'm not putting my dog, my dog is trained. I mean, that's the thing. Most little dogs are not trained off of a leash. My dog is trained off of a leash. I'm just like, no, like let her be free. Right. So I literally will drive across the street to the park. Mm. This is mile loop. And I am actually walking now about half of that with my eyes closed mm. completely. Wow. And I'm not walking into the grass or anything. And I'm just listening to the sounds and just going about. And my goal is to actually make it all the way around wow. in a mile without. Now, part of it is memorization, yeah. you know, but it's really fun because I'm actually in an active state of meditation the entire time. It's really cool. So when I'm in there in the pool and I, again, I haven't done it for a while because it's been summer for a while now, but. The eyes closed really helps yeah. a lot. It's interesting. I found that like patterns like that, I can just see different patterns and I focus on the patterns and the breath and I keep myself there. The other thing I do is I will run the chakras. Mm-hmm. So I'll think of positive, negative polarity. So mm-hmm. first chakra, seventh chakra, and I'll just keep running the chakra, teaching myself to make sure that I'm reconnecting. And if I find something that's stuck, if I'm finding an edgy pattern going circular versus vertical mm-hmm. or on the horizontal plane, then I'll camp out there. I'll try to find out what's blocking it and then go and do my thing. Two ending questions. Uh-huh. I'm always my staples. So educated person. So what are you listening to? What are you reading? What do you recommend? I don't listen to a whole lot of podcasts. Most of what I listen to are audio books. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind, of, Me kind too. of where I'm at. Ones I've been listening to recently... A good one I listened to recently was The Comfort Crisis. It was a lot of stuff that I'd already known, but it was still a really good juxtaposition of a narrative with kind of investigative journalism that goes back into all of the ways that our industrialized species has gotten itself to a, a too comfortable place. Mm. You know, seeking some occasional comfort pre-industrial species, that was, that was a, a life hack. Yeah. But it's like we solved that problem too well. Mm-hmm. And now we're in this space of comfort abundance, which is having all of these negative health outcomes, psychological outcomes, relationship outcomes, all of these bad outcomes. It's masked and it jumps back kind of back and forth. I believe he is an investigative journalist who wrote it. He goes on this month long caribou hunting expedition in Alaska. Mm. And so this is like, you got to take two planes into this place in Alaska. And he's with a very skilled guide and, and very skilled hunter up there who takes him through this journey. Mm. And they, like, he loses like 50 pounds. Oh, it's wow. Just, it's, they're out there for a month in like the tundra tracking these caribou herds and things like that. It was really, really an amazing read. And then another one is a, a shorter book is called uh, The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life. This is written by a South African man who he tracks lions. You know, he's a lion tracker for these like safaris and expeditions. And he kind of ties his own little life lessons and philosophies into the practice of like tracking and being in, you know, really immersed into nature and things like that. Hmm. So those are two really good ones that I read recently. Um, I listened to those 
on the way out to my first hunting trip this year. It was the first time I ever gone hunting. Oh, cool. I went to South Texas and took a, a wild hog because um, I really want to start moving towards harvesting my own meat out of the wild and, yeah. and removing my... Because even the meat in the grocery stores has a label on it. <laughs> I, I know. I know. God, we had um, Dr. Sean Baker on, right? Mm-hmm. And talking about the carnivore diet, and mm-hmm. but more specifically, I know what's going on with the plant-based meats. I have a lot of friends in the ketogenic space and just the lifestyle space. And I'm like, they're doing what? <sighs> he came on. Sean was amazing. Yeah. He I, came, like Sean. I haven't met him personally, but he is dialed in. He knows his business. He knows exactly what's going on. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. When we're done with schools and everything else like that, I told my wife, I want to move to the Amazon. <laughs> yeah. We're looking at Costa Rica. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, we're out. We're doing our thing, you know? Yeah. And so last question, when you get to leave the audience with whatever last words you want to say. Oh, um, one of the big things that I like to challenge people to do is to whatever you do in your life and in your practices, use your own outcomes as the, as the metric for whether or not something is good for you or works for you. We project uh, what works for us. And we, we always say, this is what worked for me. And if you want to know more about that, or if you want to try it, then great. But tinker with things and use your own personal outcomes, your own personal health outcomes. Do you look better? Do you feel better? Do you have more energy? Do you feel better about what you're doing as the metric? So often I will hear people using different metrics. Like, I eat this way because it's good for the environment, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, well, maybe the production of that food is better for the environment, but if that production of that food is not keeping you well, a sick person is not good for the environment, you know? That's right. Hospitals are not environmentally sound places. Doctors, the healthcare system is not an environmentally conscious place. Right. So if what you're doing isn't keeping you out of that system, whether it's raw, vegan, or complete carnivore, whatever it is, use your own outcomes. Your own life as the metric you know don't do it because it's the politically right thing to do or because it's got an environmentally sound label on the packaging or because it's a trend that you know is regarded as virtuous or you know socially acceptable you know just do what is best for you do what leads you to a happier healthier more fulfilled life whatever that is as Jeff Goldblum said in Jurassic Park, life will find a way. Life will find a way. <laughs> Can't thank Jason enough. Uh, yeah, he is absolutely. all the way out here from Arizona. We Something hooked up like over that. email and it was like, hey, I'm going to be in Boca. And I was like, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> and, and all of my emails when we reach out to, uh, to friends and guests were always like, hey, we have a live studio option. If you want to come out and join us for live studio, we'd love to have you. And website. Website is uh, www.morotzkoforge.com. Mm-hmm. That's M-O-R-O-Z-K-O-F-O-R-G-E.com. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks. Everyone, thanks again. We appreciate you. We'll see you for the next one. Take care. Boom. Dude, that All was right. awesome, man. Great. Thanks. Yeah. What a story. The biggest thing for me that I saw in this whole thing is your relationship with your wife. It was struggling, and no one wants to go through that. Uh, any relationship. Okay, so where'd you pick up? Because that morphic field right there is exactly what was needed at the same time. And believe it or not, 
if your wife didn't go through that, you wouldn't be living the life you're living. She would, right? So thank God that she did. Yeah. And you grew together and look how much closer and look what you get. For more some information on the Morosco Forge ice bath, visit www.moroscoforge.com. Don't forget, you can find all of our 113 episodes at scottyburgess.com and follow-up conversations are shared in our Facebook community group, The Best and Brightest. From all of us, we thank you for your continued support. We'll see you for episode 114. See you there.